Let us love one another, that with one accord we may confess. Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. And Christ is baptized. In the river Amen. A joyous after feast of the baptism of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ in the River Jordan. We spoke quite a bit about this beautiful, you could call it a cosmological feast over the last couple of days. If there are a few people who seem tired, it's because we've had a lot of services over the last couple of days. But that's good for us. It's good for us. There will be time to rest. There's also time to work and to pray. And I was just thinking a moment ago, you know, you hear people say all the time, mind over matter, mind over matter. But the fathers of the church say, give blood, receive spirit. That's how we approach it. Give blood, meaning, what is it? Put, get a, put a little skin in the game. You heard people say that? Yes. Give in order to receive the Spirit. Or as St. Paul says so beautifully, though outwardly I'm wasting away, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. But you have to believe that that inward renewal is taking place if you're overly subjected to the flesh, to the passions, then you will tire and weary. But there's a kind of tiredness that does not lead to weariness. It's a tiredness that's a physical one while yet clinging to the transcendent hope, the energy of the unwaning light of life in Christ, which was revealed to us, which was revealed to us beginning at His Holy Baptism, which we call the Epiphany or Theophany, the Revelation of God. And on the day after the Baptism of our Lord, we have another special feast. Now, some of you are newer to Orthodoxy, and you're thinking, why do you call it a feast? There's not always a big meal afterward. I met with a guy once who had visited an Orthodox church somewhere else, and he said they had the feast of this thus and so, you know, saint, but there was no meal afterward. It didn't really make sense to me. What's the, why do they call it a feast? Well, the word feast just really means celebration. You know, we, we celebrate or commemorate the lives of saints and the events in the life of Christ, the manifestation of the goodness of God, His saving work, and the real banquet for us, better than any buffet, better than any choice meal or even your favorite steakhouse, believe it or not, is the Lord's Supper. To become partakers of the very body and blood of Christ. That is, that's the height. That's the best meal that any man can have. So that's also the way in which we celebrate the feasts of the church. 
But today we specifically commemorate St. John the Baptist because on the day after a major feast, we tend to celebrate kind of the, or commemorate the big main characters or players in, in that feast. Like after Nativity, we have the synaxis of the, do you know? Theotokos. You're like, shepherds, magi, what? The synaxis of the Theotokos, a special commemoration of the Mother of God. On the day after the presentation of the Lord in the temple, which comes up in early February, do you know whose feast it is? Synaxis of St. Simeon and Anna, the prophetess. So, you know, those, those ones who recognized Christ when he was brought into the temple and prophesied. And today, because of this man who placed his hand upon the head of Christ and baptized him, who was obedient to Christ, we commemorate him specifically. And I'd like to talk about a couple of lessons from St. John the Baptist today in that we're specifically remembering him. A couple lessons from St. John the Baptist. The first of all is that he is what we might call the proto-monastic. Proto-monastic. You know what the word proto means? First. First. I mean, you could say the prophet Elijah was like that too, but I mean, really, he was the link between the Old and the New Testament, the last and greatest of the prophets, because not only did he anticipate, but he came into contact with the one whom all of the prophet, prophets were anticipating, Christ himself. And he lived a peculiar life, a life of simplicity, out in the wilderness, a life of isolation and prayer, which created the context for him to do the will of God. We already see we already see in him what now plays out as what we call the ascetical life. The ascetical life is the purifying of the self from one's worldly attachments and passions. And through separating himself from the world and its distractions and attachments and addictions, he became sensitive to the will of God. And someone who's sensitive to the will of God becomes free to do the will of God. We call this discernment. Discernment means walking in step with the will of God freely. Monasticism is really the definitive life of repentance. But not repentance as a lot of us think of it in the West. Repentance as some, some kind of self-flagellating, you know, self-hatred. You know, we, we actually, our problem is that we hate ourselves and we don't see ourselves as we are and we need to rediscover who we truly are. And the monastics are the doctors of repentance. The doctors, the PhDs in the school of repentance. I'd like to say that repentance is coming to the realization that sin is not necessary. Just to admit to ourselves, sin is not necessary. You might say, well, Father, it's inevitable. Is it, though? Is it, does it have to be? And that's where we would want to challenge ourselves. Because a lot of the time, 
Even when you walk out, you, you've been cleansed. You've been washed through tears of repentance and the, the baptismal waters of the absolution. You're, you're thinking, I'm going to just go around that carousel again. Maybe. That's possible. But not as a matter of necessity. Maybe we are struggling with the passions and we need to learn how to overcome them. And through patience comes the healing. Through repeated repentance comes the healing that we need. But if we somehow think that sin is necessary or just inevitable, especially in our lives, then we've given over to the lie. That the enemy has greater authority than the will of God working out working itself out through or in cooperation with man who can be purified of the passions. And so the monastics give us a prophetic example of this way of life. This is why the faithful Christians throughout the history of Christianity have always sought out monastics for wisdom. You don't have to be a monk or a nun in order to visit a monastery, to go to a spiritual oasis, to receive the refreshment that is to be found there and the inspiration. Oftentimes when I go to the monastery, I'm just reminded that I need to keep my meager rule of prayer. You know, they're getting up at 2.30 in the morning or something like that and starting their rule of prayer and doing, who knows how many prostrations, how many tears they're shedding on my behalf, praying for me. Have I even shed one tear on behalf of the world? Or was my tear shed out of self-pity rather than love for those around me? He served as the proto-monastic and an example of those who would want to let that fire of the, the heart that's burning for true intimacy, to let that fire fulfill its longing. And inspired by them, by St. John and his posterity and monasticism, we also can be drawn into such a life where we realize that sin is not necessary. Some of you might be called to monasticism too. Don't forget that. But if you are, it will be something that becomes clearer with time through the working out of your salvation. Next, that we can learn from St. John is, it's not about me, I think. We can learn from St. John, it's not about me. And we live a very me-oriented, egocentric life, oftentimes. We always act as if our feelings are more important than those of others. And this puts us at odds with God in trying to figure out our relationship with God, because if we're always prioritizing our own emotions and our own feelings, then we're going to automatically do that in our relationship with God. If we do it in our families and in our relationships that we have in our workplace. This isn't to say that your emotions and your feelings are not authentic or valuable or meaningful, but they are not the summit of the human experience. The summit of the human experience Again, is to enter into union, a loving union with God and neighbor through the pouring out from oneself, divesting oneself of his or her own self-reference. And then 
And then after that, you can learn a couple other little examples from St. John's It's Not About Me lesson. By overcoming himself, he came to, under, to, to be able to identify who Christ is. We live in a day and age where someone will say the word, the name Christ, but you don't even know who they're talking about. Are we talking about the same person? We know how you spell the name, but, you know, do we mean the same thing? And it's through the purification of the passions, through the purification of the heart, and, as the fathers say, the purification of the noose, one's perception or ability to, uh, to perceive of God. We come to identify who Christ really is. And oftentimes, when we come into contact with that God-man, just like St. John, we say things like, whose sandal, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Like St. Peter, depart from me, for I am a man unclean. But from identifying Christ, then comes pointing to Christ. And that's another beautiful thing that St. John did. Not only did he find the ultimate satisfaction of encountering the God-man, but he pointed to Christ, that others might be drawn to him as well. It's one thing to have a treasure and possess it, and to love it, and to enjoy it. It's another thing to draw others in to the beauty of such a treasure. And this is what St. John did. He pointed to Christ and he deferred to Christ. He deferred to Christ in a beautiful way through his humility. There's the potential for someone who's out raising their voice in the wilderness, this prophetic voice telling people, calling them a brood of vipers and things like that, to give in to some temptation toward pride. But the boldness came from the knowledge of Christ. And so when Christ told them to baptize me, he said, essentially, no, I'm not worthy. And Christ said, do it anyway. And he said, then I'll do it. That's a good example for us too. Because a lot of the time, I have this conversation with people often. I'm not worthy, Father. I'm not worthy to draw near to the Holy Mysteries, to even be in the church. It's totally, I mean, if we think about the, uh, the utter mystery, you know, the paradox that heaven and earth collide in this place. This, I like to call it this little war-torn parish, you know, with uh, construction going on and imperfect people. It would be overwhelming, that's right. We would want to be like St. Mary of Egypt who couldn't cross the threshold. But every time God allows us to cross the threshold into the church, we should bow even lower before Him and say, Not my will, but Thy will be done. How can it be, Lord, that I'm even here in Thy presence? I'm not worthy. And He'll say, That's exactly what makes you worthy. Because in your weakness, I'm... the." You're made strong in me. So monasticism, it's not about me. And I'm sorry, but there's one more. 
There's one more. Speaking the truth regardless of the consequence. That's another important lesson that St. John had. But it was through the cleansing of the passions, through humility before God, that he could speak. He held his tongue in the wilderness as an obscure figure for many, many years until he presented himself saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so, when the time came, it was through discernment, again, a God-given boldness, not a human one. Sometimes we think, I should be this way, and therefore I should act, you know, we force it. And it comes across as contrived, and we feel like we're faking it. Well, as Christians, we don't need to fake it. We just need to orient ourselves to Christ, and He will give us the lesson to either silence ourselves or to speak or somewhere in between, but to do His will. But to speak the truth regardless of the consequence has to be born from someone who is working out his or her own salvation, who understands that bearing witness to Christ is not about drawing attention to myself. This is a lesson that we receive from all of the saints, but especially, again, St. John the Baptist, because they're not trying to get us to become loyal to them. This is a very important lesson from St. John, because when people started going to him for baptism, him and his disciples were having a very flourishing and effective ministry. But when Christ came, the people started going to Jesus Instead of John and his disciples came to complain to him. And what did John say? Let's put up some billboards and start advertising. And no. Baptisms by John. He said, this is that my joy may be made complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He spoke the truth at the right time, the right place in the proper way. And when that season of his life was over, he quieted himself. Because Christ is ultimately the one who is working and accomplishing the salvation of humanity. And you and I and the saints bear witness to this, get to participate in that beautiful work. As he guides us by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I hope. So I would like to say that speaking the truth or what we might call prophetic utterance. Prophetic utterance is merely just speaking the truth. It's born from humility. And it's okay to be misunderstood. St. John obviously was misunderstood. And our Savior was misunderstood. And so we will be as well at times, and it's okay to be misunderstood as long as you're not faking it. As long as we're not faking it. So a few lessons from St. John the Baptist today, who is a, a model for us in many ways, a model of repentance, an inspiration to monasticism, a point of orientation for those of us who need to hear that word, bear fruit worthy of repentance. 
He reveals to us that it's not about me, but it's about identifying Christ and pointing to Him and deferring to Him. And that when we do those things, that we should not be afraid to speak the truth regardless of the consequence. The Apolitikion for St. John says that he, after he was martyred, he went and proclaimed even to those in Hades the God who appeared in the flesh and taketh away the sins of the world. Because he was martyred before Christ was crucified and resurrected. So what would he do? Of course he would go and continue the proclamation of Christ. And sometimes it feels like uh, we're dwelling in Hades, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, our own Hades, yes, that we carry around with ourselves, where Christ needs to be proclaimed, but the world that we live in as well. And so through the inspiration of St. John, I think that we can humbly approach life with an authenticity, a desire to proclaim Christ in our lives, even when it feels like we're dwelling in Hades. So, beloved in Christ, let us honor our beautiful Savior, who was manifest as love at the time of His baptism. Let us not be afraid to live out a life of continual repentance, the renewal of our baptism through tears, through divesting ourselves of ourselves. And let us ask for the intercessions of the holy ones who bear witness to the reality of the God-men, like St. John, the forerunner and Baptist, that most honorable and last, the greatest of the prophets, that through his intercessions, we might fall in love with our beautiful Savior and glorify Him all the days of our lives, now and forever and unto ages of ages. Amen.